So we started last weekend by talking about conversations with God. Conversations that, as we said last weekend, are, are ways that we communicate, and that communication builds a connection. Just as we have conversations with our spouses and with our children, with coworkers, with neighbors, and those conversations build a connection. So having a conversation with God, praying, builds a connection. We looked at how in this connection, oftentimes our focus of prayer becomes so much on our request and God's response. But prayer is much more than that. In fact, when we look at scripture, we don't always get what we ask for. We'll talk about more about that next weekend. But what God is doing is building a relationship and helping us to grow in reliance. And we're gonna look at more about that idea of growing in reliance in trust as we talk about learning to trust in the midst of prayer. As we begin our time talking about prayer, let us start with prayer. We pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather here together this morning to spend time in your word, to be reminded of the gift of prayer, because prayer is a gift. And there are times, Lord, where we neglect that, we forget about it, and it becomes a last-ditch effort instead of the first thing that comes to our mind. So Lord, this morning, remind us about how important it is that we have a strong, steadfast prayer life so that we might ever walk with you faithfully each and every day, building a connection with you through a prayer and through a conversation where we know that you will answer us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2008, I was a pastor at Emmanuel in Belvedere. And that summer, I received a call to be the campus pastor at Sheboygan Lutheran High School. It was the beginning of the summer. And Delina and I spent a few weeks talking and praying about it. And at the end of it, we declined that call and we decided that God was leading us to stay at Emmanuel and Belvedere. Well, about a month and a half later, they called me back up and said, we'd like you to reconsider the call, so we're going to send you the call again. At which point, when God does that twice, you start to ask yourself, why is this happening again? And in the midst of that, in the midst of, of, of deliberating this and going up and visiting and spending time with people, we felt God was leading us to accept the call. And we weren't sure why, although we would come to find out why. And as we were preparing to leave, this was probably about two weeks before the school year starts. So if you are a teacher, you understand how much fun that is that you have now accepted a call to be a teacher at a school and you have two weeks to prepare your lesson plans and your schedule and your classroom and everything like that. So, so we're going up there, we're having to buy a house, get our, all our stuff packed up. My wife is pregnant at that time, so there's a lot going on there. And so we just have a lot going on. And in the midst of that transition, I get a phone call from my dad who calls me and says, says I just wanna let you know as you're moving up here that, that some things have gone on. We've gone to the doctor and the doctor says that I have colon cancer. And so he was diagnosed with that. And, and about a week later, we get a phone call from my sister at about 1 a.m., just hysterical on the phone. And she had just come home from hanging out with some of her friends over the summer. And one of her friends was driving home and uh, didn't, was on a road he didn't know and got to a stop sign, didn't know the stop sign was there. And he flipped the car because there was another car that didn't have a stop sign, was thrown from the vehicle and died. In the midst of all of that, my wife and I, as we're making these transitions and hearing about this, we begin to look at each other and we begin to say, you know what, there is no way that we can handle this. Like, we're just overwhelmed. 
Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna get through this? How is, you know, like there's just so much going on and, and, and my mom and my dad and my sister and, 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 and the new calling that I have and it's just, how are we going to do this? And we were just overwhelmed. You ever been there? Just overwhelmed? Where you just look at your circumstances and look at what's going on in your life, like, like how are we going to do this? How are we gonna make this through? How are we going to handle everything that's thrown against us? There are many times where we feel overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but in the morning, um, before uh, when I get up and, and, and I'm getting ready for my day, uh, we have a rule in our house, and the rule in our house is um, there is no fighting before coffee. You have that rule in your house, right? Like there is like nobody talks to me, nobody like just, just do your thing, give me my coffee, and then once my coffee is gone, we can have a conversation because life is overwhelming before coffee especially with six children, okay? Life is overwhelming before coffee, right? Or some of you may feel like this, right? You look at your office and you're like, man, my to-do list, or, or I, I'm so thankful for the advent of technology because now I don't have sticky notes. I just use Evernote instead, but it doesn't make it any better because now you just can keep going and going and you don't run out of space on your desk, right? Because your Evernote can go forever and so the to-do list goes forever, but you feel like that and you're like, I am over. Or your calendar, and some of you are like, actually, I prefer that calendar. There's actually some white space there. But you look at your calendar, you're like, and I don't even know how we're going to do this and how we're going to get everywhere we need to go and get everything done and, and make all the arrangements we need, and I am overwhelmed. It's a family that looks at the number of bills that are sitting on their desk, and they look at their income, and they go, I'm just overwhelmed by debt. It's students who get their, their, their class list and then they go to their first classes and get their syllabi and they look at it and they go, man, all of these papers and all of these books and, 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 and man, I just bit off more than I can chew. I am overwhelmed. It's the family who has a spouse who's laid off and doesn't know what they're going to do. It's the teenagers whose friends betray them and turn their back on them. It's the job that gets demanding more and more each day. It's the family who finds out that the husband and wife, that their marriage is over and now they're going to have to figure out how to, to deal with a broken family. It's the family who finds out that one spouse or the other has cancer and they have to figure out how are they going to make their life's transitions in the midst of this diagnosis. It's worry. Stress, anxiety, difficult transitions, tests and uncertainty. And in the midst of that, you're just trying to hold on, going, how am I going to get through this life that is overwhelming and overpowering when I don't know what in the world I am going to do? And sometimes in those moments, prayer becomes that last desperate act when you've tried everything else. But we're going to see in Scripture, though, is, la is prayer should never be the last desperate act that we take when we've done everything else, but it should be our first line of defense before we undertake to do anything else. We're gonna see that in the story of Hezekiah. So if you'd open up your Bibles this morning to 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings chapter 18, if you brought your Bible from home, wonderful. If you're using the Pew Bible that's in front of you, you can find that on page 325, 2 Kings Chapter 18. As you're looking that up, just to kind of set the stage for what's going on in the life of Hezekiah, the year is right around 722 BC. 
And Assyria is really the, the ruling nation at that time. And they lived in a, in a world without the United Nations and they lived in a world without huge peace treaties except for peace treaties by convenience. And by peace, peace treaties by convenience, what it meant by that is that you really lived by this rule. There was one guiding factor at that time, might makes right. Might makes right. So if you have the power, if you have the strength, if you have, have the army that's big enough, you can really do whatever you want to do. That's Assyria. So you can see Assyria, which is up here, uh, right in the top right. And Assyria at that time is that nation. And in 722 BC, they go through and they wipe out the northern kingdom. So you can see Israel right over here. The northern kingdom is Samaria right there. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. And they wipe out Samaria in 722 BC, but, but they're not done. And, and understand this, Assyria, when they went through a nation, they didn't just go through a nation and then they leave the best and the brightest to rebuild themselves or, or they take the best and the brightest with them so that they can assimilate them to their country. That would be what Babylon does a little bit later when it takes over the southern kingdom. But what they would do is they would come through and they would just annihilate everybody. And so they annihilate the northern kingdom. We don't hear anything else really about the northern kingdom after this. Then they come into the southern kingdom and they decide that they want to take the southern kingdom as well. So they begin to attack all these different countries or all these different cities around Jerusalem to begin the conquest of Jerusalem. Because if you want to take the capital, if you can wipe out all the other cities and their armies, then none of them can reinforce the capital. So they have a great, they just have great war strategy on their side. In fact, we're going to see they have a great, great army on their side. And in all respects at this time, Assyria is the boot and Judah, the, the southern kingdom, is the ant. And what happens when the ant meets the boot? The boot wins, right? And on its own, that's exactly what would happen. So before Sennacherib shows up, though, something very significant happens. We're not going to read it, but, but in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Hezekiah does what's going to end up being one of the two best strategies he could ever do to defeat this army. And what he does is he goes to all the high places and he goes through the temple and he finds all of the false idols and all of the pagan images and, and anything that doesn't belong to God and he takes it out and he destroys it. And what that is a reminder to us of is this, is that before we face the enemy outside of us, you and I, we need to, to deal with the enemy that is inside of our own gates. And there are enemies that we allow inside our own gates before enemies that come from outside of us attack us. The enemy of doubt, the enemy of pain, uh, the enemy of lust, the enemy of, of negativity. We need to deal with those. In fact, sometimes we allow those enemies to come in the lives of our children when we put idols in our children's lives, the idols of sports and, and the idols of, of athletics and the idols of academics and, and, and popularity, and we think that, that those are the things we should help our children press into, and we're allowing an enemy inside our gates to steal their heart. Hezekiah says, I'm gonna throw all those enemies out because there's only one thing we should worship. There's only one thing we prioritize. There's only one thing that comes first, and that's Jesus. That's God. That's the one who, who, who will save us and defend us. So Hezekiah casts out the enemies inside of the gates. And then Sennacherib comes, and he doesn't come himself to begin, but he sends his messenger ahead of him. You can see who his messenger is in verse 19 of chapter 18. And it says, And then Rebshakeh came, and he said to them, 
Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Now that's the most significant question that he could ask and we can ask. And the question we need to ask is, in whom do we now trust? In whom do we place our reliance? In whom do we turn to in our greatest moment of need when we feel overwhelmed? Who do you turn to? He says, are you going to turn to Egypt? They're not going to save you. Are you going to turn to yourself? You're not going to be able to save yourself. In fact, in verse 23, he taunts them by saying this. He says, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. Do you see what he's taunting them with? He's like, like we'll give you the tools of war. We'll give you the tanks. We'll, we'll give you the jet fighters. We'll give you the F-1 bombers. We'll give you whatever you need. And you just have to find the pilots and you have to find the drivers for those. And if you can do that, you can have all the tools of war. Because you don't have that. You don't have anyone that can, can ride a horse. You don't have any chariot drivers. You have nothing. Because you are, are, are a weak army, a weak nation. And you need to surrender right now or else. And so the people begin to fear. We know they begin to fear because in verse 26, uh, the people who are standing, some of the leaders who are standing on the wall say to them, please speak to your servants in Aramaic for we understand Aramaic, but do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. He says, stop talking in the language of the people because you're causing them to fear. He goes, exactly, that's what we want to do. And isn't that exactly what Satan wants to do to us? In the midst of being overwhelmed, in the midst of the brokenness around us, in the midst of, of, of news reports, in the midst of everything that's going on in our life, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of all that we have to face that seeks to overwhelm us, what Satan wants us to do is to give up and give in to the fear that would overcome our life. Because if Satan can give us, get us to give up and to give in, or get us to turn in on ourselves, then Satan wins. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, no, no, we want you to be afraid. We're going to let everybody in all of Jerusalem know that we are about to destroy you. And so he goes and he goes on and he says to them a little bit later on in verse 30, 33, as he says he knows the nation and he goes, I don't even think that your God's going to save you. Verse 33 goes, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shephavrim? And Hena and Iva, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He goes, he goes you think that the Lord's going to save you? He goes, he goes, ask all of those other countries if their gods saved them. None of them did. Not a single one. Give up. Give in. It's over. Well, Hezekiah knows it's not over. So Hezekiah goes to Isaiah the prophet and says, says what's going to happen? And Isaiah says, says, be strong, be steadfast, be firm. The Lord has said that you will not lose. In fact, Sennacherib will go back the way he came and he will die by the sword in his own country. So they don't answer him. They don't answer Sennacherib at all. So Sennacherib, again, as he starts to close in on the gates, as they could feel the ground shaking with the, 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 the hooves of the, the war horses that are coming in. And the stench of death precedes them and the sound of the trumpets of their army would have reached their ears. Once again, the messenger comes to Jerusalem. 
And the messenger again says to them, Reb Shekai goes, goes, this is it, it is over with, you are about to be destroyed. But he doesn't just tell him this time. If you look at verse 14 in chapter 19, it says this, so Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. Now, at that time, the way it would often have been, based on some things we know about history, is it wouldn't have necessarily been a little note that was written on a piece of paper, folded up nicely, and handed off to somebody to give to the king. But many times what they would have done is taken a big piece of stone and they would have chiseled their letter in the stone so they would have had to carry this piece of stone like a parade through the middle of the city carrying their death warrant to the king, creating fear. And Hezekiah receives this letter and what is the very first thing that he does? He says, so he goes up to the temple of the Lord and spreads it out before the Lord and Hezekiah prays. Now, if you're a general and you're talking about tactics of war, the last thing you ever do is turn your back to the enemy. Because if you turn your back to the enemy, you're getting an arrow in the back. Because the enemy is not going to give up. But Hezekiah turns his back to the enemy, faces the Lord, bows down, spreads out the letter before the Lord, and prays. He doesn't fortify, he doesn't cower in fear, he turns to the Lord in prayer. Do you know when you bow before a king, there's really one of two things that can happen to you, right? Like if you watch those old movies or whatnot and the person kneels before the king and the king is there with his sword, it usually ends in one of two ways, doesn't it? Either that person gets knighted or beheaded. It's one or the other. Hezekiah comes before the Lord, kneels before the Lord, but he knows that his Lord is a Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he says, God, save us. In fact, these are his words, his exact prayer. He says, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib that he has sent to insult the living God. Notice it's not to insult us, but this insults you. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. But they were not gods, only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Do you notice he doesn't turn to fortify the city. He doesn't come up with a better strategy. He doesn't do everything else first and then as a last-ditch effort go to the Lord in prayer. This is his first line of defense is he comes to the Lord and he prays. And it goes back to that question that they asked at the beginning. In the moment of greatest need, when you are overwhelmed, when you think that the victory is not yours but the enemy's, who do you trust? It's a little like this. When, when I was in Honduras, it was the day that the uh, Packers and the Bears were playing. And we got back to the hotel and I pulled out my phone because you don't get reception really down there anywhere else but there was Wi-Fi at the hotel and I pulled out my phone because I wanted to see what the score of the Bear-Packer game was and, and not that I was actually thinking the Bears were going to be winning but I just wanted to see and, and so I opened it up and the Bears were up 20 to nothing at half and I'm like wait a minute this has got to be wrong like maybe it's backwards maybe right like something is wrong here and then I see Rodgers is out and I'm like man we have a chance we could win this game this is really good right so the second half starts. If you don't believe me about this story, just ask anyone who was on the trip to Honduras. So, so the second half starts, 
And all of a sudden I see it come through that Rodgers has re-entered the game. And the moment that happened, I looked at everyone else around me who's all Packer fans, and I said to them, the Bears are gonna lose. (laughs) Because I had more faith in Rodgers than I had in my own team. (laughs) Maybe than some Packer fans do right now, right? Like who do you trust to when you think that the victory is theirs and not yours? Who do you rely on? Not kickers anymore in the NFL. But who do, you, who do you turn to? Who do you trust in? Who do you rely on? Hezekiah turned to the Lord. He said, there's nobody else that can give us victory. Nobody else can save us. He understood when the enemy approaches your gates, turn and kneel, not as a last-ditch effort, but the first line of defense. And then the Lord says this. He goes, he goes on and he talks about how he's not going to come into the city. But notice that last line. It says, and the Lord said, I will defend the city and I will save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. He goes, he goes don't add more soldiers. Don't, don't fortify the ramparts. Don't, you don't need to do anything else. I will take care of it and I will save the day. The psalmist reminds us of the same power. Would you read these words with me this morning from Psalm 20? Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Do you see that promise? He says, whatever you are facing, whatever you are going through, whatever is coming to overwhelm you in your life, don't turn to God last and yourself first, but turn to God first. Prayer does that. What prayer does is prayer turns us from fear to faith. It turns us to the one who has power over what seeks to overpower us. Prayer is not a last-ditch effort, but it is the first line of defense for our lives in in the midst of what seeks to overwhelm us. And this doesn't always mean that God will change your circumstances. It doesn't. Ask Paul, who three times prayed to the Lord to take away the thorn in the flesh, and God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Trust in me. Rely on me. Turn from fear to faith. And know that I can overpower what overpowers you. And Hezekiah, he experienced it. Do you know how he experienced it? That night when they went to sleep, and I don't know how you go to sleep when that enemy is surrounding your gates, but that night they went to sleep. When they woke up in the morning, the angel of the Lord had gone through the camp of the Assyrians and had killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And Sennacherib, finding this in the morning, it says he packed up camp, went home, and then was killed by his own people in his home country, just as the Lord had prophesied. God saved them. We actually know this is true. There's a historical document that said that Sennacherib came to Jerusalem, caged up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage, and then turned around and went home. He never said how or why, because who wants to explain that away? But that, we actually have historical documents that this happened. Because we know this, that when we turn to the Lord in prayer, and we turn from fear to faith, we will see the one who has power over what overpowers us, And we will know the God who is for us and with us and can save us from whatever overwhelms us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many times we turn to you as a last-ditch effort in prayer instead of our first line of defense. We confess that that is wrong. So forgive us, God. May we turn to you first. 
with our families, with our children, with our marriages, with our church, with our community, with our very faith, may we turn to you first. May we lay it before you just as Hezekiah laid that letter before you. May we lay it before you and may we trust it into your hands knowing that you have, have power over whatever overpowers us. Forgive us, Lord, and turn us to you in prayer that you might grow our relationship with you and our reliance upon you more and more each day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.